invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. It is said <clears throat> that ignorance is bliss. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe at times you have thought that that was true uh, as well. But whether or not you are ignorant, whether or not you know, or whether or not you even believe something to be true, does not change whether or not it is true. This is going to bug me all morning, so just give me a second here. I'm going to be touching it all. Technology is awesome, but man. Okay. So whether you're ignorant of it or whether you just disbelieve it doesn't mean that it isn't true, right? For instance, the speed limit. You can be ignorant of the speed limits. It doesn't change that there is a speed limit. You can ignore the speed limit and say, I don't believe in a speed limit. It doesn't change that there is a speed limit, right? Whether I'm, I'm willfully ignorant or, or un, unwillfully ignorant, or whether I'm just truly unbelieving, does not change that something is still true. Many people today are, are ignorant of or, or willingly unbelieving of what God has said, of what God has said about salvation and sin, of judgments, and of the eternality of the human soul. And in, in that condition, uh, the life that we live then is for ourselves. We live life on, quote unquote, on our terms, for, for our desires, for, for our pleasures, with, with no thought or consideration or understanding or willful recognition of what comes next. Whether you believe it or not, there is a next. Last week, we began our study through Genesis chapter 19, where we found two angels the two angels that met Abram, Abraham in chapter 18, now come to Sodom. We see how they received an unholy welcome from the men of Sodom. And now in our passage today, we will see as these angels proceed to bring about God's judgment on the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The story of Sodom stands as a real life cautionary tale of the results of rejecting God's word and God's way. Whether one is ignorant or willfully unbelieving, when we reject what God has said, judgment comes no matter what. So after personally witnessing the wickedness of Sodom, the angels then in our passage today tell Lot what is about to happen and what he needed to do. Look at verse 12. Then the men, that's the angels, said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now, we'll remember back in chapter 18 that the Lord discloses to Abraham what was about to happen. 
He tells them that the outcry against the city has, has come to him. It was great, and their sin was, was grave, and therefore God was going to judge these cities. Now here in chapter 19, these angels are disclosing to Lot the judgment that is about to come to Sodom. It's as if, one, in one writer's words, God had seen enough. The angels had come, they've seen the wickedness, and now judgment was to fall. And so the angels told Lot to get his family out of the city. Then we see Lot's response in verse 14. So Lot went and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. This is what he says. Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. Now, when we first read this, this verse... Uh, it seems to be reflecting mostly on the sons-in-law who were to marry the daughters, right? Uh, they were, of course, responsible for their unbelief of what Lot was telling them. But we have to ask when we read the text, why would they think Lot is joking? What, what would cause them to, to hear that judgment is coming to their city and think it's a joke, what, why would they think that? What, what is the disconnect between Lot saying these things and the response of these sons-in-laws to be? Well, there seems to be an indication by the, not only this response, but also his family, that, that following God, uh, the, the reality of coming judgment was not something they were familiar with and not something they were particularly moved by. Now, we know in our Bible, at this point in human history, this is not the first time that God's judgment has been poured out onto humanity. And certainly through history and tradition, or oral tradition and oral uh, recounting of history, Lot could have known about those times. And we go back to the garden where judgment came against Adam and Eve. We go back to, to their sons Cain and Abel and how Cain was judged. Uh, we can go back to the flood, of course, and the Tower of Babel. All, all these are the judgment of God being poured out on man. And yet, these sons-in-laws are not moved. They're unconvinced. Lot was unconvincing in his explanation of the events. And the reason we can conclude was because he lacked credibility and integrity. One writer says it this way, no Christian can find his pleasure and profit in the world and at the same time bear effectual testimony against the world. We've already noted Lot's progressive friendship with the world. We looked at that last week more. How he looked towards Sodom, then he moved near towards Sodom, then he lived in Sodom, and then he was a leader, an elder in the city. Of Sodom. But not only had Lot forsaken his spiritual influence in society, but we also see that he had forsaken his spiritual influence in his own home. Here, his two sons-in-laws-to-be were unaffected by this announcement of coming judgment from God. These men, these are the men, these men who, who we don't know Everything about them, but they were living in Sodom. 
We could conclude that they may have been men of Sodom. Potentially they were part of the mob that just the night before was pounding on Lot's door. As verse four tells us that all the people from the last man of Sodom came to Lot's house. These men, with no fear of the Lord, these were the men that his, his, wife, his, his daughters were going to marry. What was Lot doing with his family? Now, we don't know the spiritual status of his, his daughters. Though in the next passage that, that we'll see next week, we find more doubts about their spirituality than answers. What is clear is that Lot did not shepherd his family well. And fathers, fathers are responsible. Now, fathers are not responsible for the, all the choices of their adult children. That's not what I'm suggesting here at all this morning. But we are responsible to raise our children in a certain way. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us to raise our children in the nurture, in admonition. Now, those are maybe older words, words we don't use as much. We could say in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Raise your children in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Now, some fathers neglect this responsibility, as Lot clearly neglected this responsibility. In large part, we can conclude men today because of their own lack of spiritual maturity. And consequently, due to the lack of spiritual maturity, men outsource this responsibility to the church or to their wife. This is not God's design. This is not what the scriptures teach. But fathers cannot take their children where they have not been. Spiritually, you cannot disciple someone where you have not been discipled. You can't grow, help someone grow to where you have not been. So instead of working on our own spiritual growth, fathers, we outsource. But instead of doing that, instead of advocating our responsibility, fathers, we must begin to work on our own walk with the Lord. Uh, we can look at it and say, I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about helping my kid follow Jesus. Well, how about you start following Jesus? How about you start learning what it means to know Christ, what it means to follow him faithfully, and then you can direct your children also. It's not too late. It's never too late, quite frankly, to begin, to begin growing, to begin developing a spiritual character in order to lead our families well. And fathers, I just want to ask you this morning, just as you sit here, in what ways are you discipling your children? That's a great question for all of us. In what ways are, are, are we intentionally helping our children follow Jesus? That is our responsibility. How do you point them to Jesus? How are you modeling what it looks like to trust him and to follow him? In what ways are you helping your children to know him and, and live in, in, in alignment with his word. It doesn't have to be big ways. It can be, but it can be small ways. We're reminded that, that much more is caught than is taught. However, we are to teach as well. And Deuteronomy chapter six is very clear about that. That the role of, of the father, the role of parents are to teach, to teach our children, to teach them about the Lord, to point them to the Lord. 
How are you doing that? In what ways can you begin to do that? Even now. Although Lot was righteous before the Lord, his love for the world was obviously great. Look at verses 15 and 16. This is right after his conversation with his sons-in-law. Verse 15 then says, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And verse 16 says, but he lingered. Hear, hear that again. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot. Now again, what Lot understands about these two men should have, should have had a better picture after they struck the men with blindness at his door, right? Should have had, had some idea. Now here they're saying, get out of the city now. Take your family and get out now. Judgment is coming, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And then verse 16, but he lingered. You can't read past that. You can't keep going. He lingered. What does that mean? It means he hesitated. It means he waited. It means he delayed leaving. Why? If someone tells you your house is going to, to be destroyed, get out, and you hang around for a little bit longer, why? Because you don't want to leave. Lot didn't want to leave. He didn't want to leave Sodom. He liked it there. He loved it there. It was his home. We've said before that here in chapter 19, there's, we see this contrast between Abraham and Lot. And here's another contrast. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. What was Lot doing? Lot was building a house in the wicked city of Sodom and did not want to leave. He was looking at the things of this world, his possessions. He was looking at things. He was looking at stuff. He was loving the world. He didn't want to let go. And we're going to find out his wife doesn't want to let go either. We'll see that in just a moment. And as stark as the contrast is, and it is stark between Abraham and Lot, we have to ask ourselves about our own love. Do we love the world like this? Does the world have a hold on us like it did on Lot? When God calls us out of the world, out of sin, do we linger do we delay? Do we wait? Do we hesitate? <clears throat> do, do we want a little bit more? Does the world, does worldliness have a hold in your life? And, and how would you know if it does? To some degree, it's the, the water we swim in, isn't it? The world in worldliness. How, how do you know if, if, if you're actually loving the world in this way? Here's a question from theologian um, David Allen. It's just simply this. Uh, he, there's multiple questions. But let me just give you one. Do you pursue the things of the world with greater zeal than serving the Lord? Do you pursue the things of the world with greater zeal than serving the Lord? If, if you say, actually, yeah, I do. If you can be honest with yourself. Then what does that say about your heart? 
What does that say about your love? We, we all love something. It's, it, everybody loves something. It's not a question of, of if you love, it's, it's what we love. And this very question, questions like it, expose where our heart is. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Lot loved the world. What do you love? And even though Lot was in this condition, God was merciful. Look at verse six, the rest of verse 16. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. And the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, one of the angels said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. The angels had to literally drag Lot and his family out of the city to prevent them from being swept away. This is the condition of Lot and his family. And yet this is the mercy of God that he would do just that. This is how, how extravagant God's grace and mercy is. Grace is giving to us what we don't deserve, and mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. Here, Moses, the writer of this, this narrative, says that the Lord being merciful to him. Mercy is not giving to him what he does deserve. God was merciful. So the angels then give these specific instructions in verse 17. Escape, don't look back, go to the valley, get to the hill, or don't stop at the valley, escape to the hills. To which Lot then responds with, with a, a shameless negotiation. Look at verse 18. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. You think? You're hanging out when the fire is going to fall. They rescue you and you respond with, thank you. Th thank you for saving me. I appreciate that. But then he doesn't stop there. He could have stopped there, right? Thanks for getting this out. No, no. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is, this city is near enough to flee to it and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? and my life will be saved. In this, this situation, Lot goes to negotiation about where he should flee to. This is unbelievable. And his, his, his plea is, I can't make it that far. I won't be able to get there before the destruction comes. I'm not gonna make it. As if to say, the Lord who rescued him from Sodom couldn't ensure his safety all the way to the hills. no. What is he doing? He's, he's requesting something else. He's requesting to go to another city. Another city. This little city, he calls it twice, was said to be a little Sodom. It's actually one of the cities that was in, in a, a part of the five kings that went against the four kings back in chapter um, 13. When the war broke out, Zora, what, that's what the city is called, was one of those cities and yet, 
we next find that the request is granted. As crazy as this is, the request is granted. Look at verse 21. And he said to him, that's he, meaning the angel, said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of this city was called Zorah. An interesting line there at the end of the middle of verse 22. I can do nothing until you arrive there. God had committed to protect Lot's life. And so until Lot was out, until Lot was to safety, the judgment would not fall. But on going to the city instead of the hills, James Montgomery Boyce writes this, in the final analysis, God will allow you to do what you are committed to doing. And you will have to bear the consequence of your actions. God will allow you. You want to go to that city lot? You can go to the city. You want to conduct yourself in that way? Go ahead. You want to do that thing? Do that thing. God's not controlling your every step. He's not controlling your every action. We do make choices. And those choices bear consequences. Some of those very consequences we'll see next week in verses 30 through 38. But in the next passage, in the next section here, verses 23 through 29, reveal the consequences of sin. Not against Lot, but against those who persisted rejecting God's word in God's way. Look at verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zorah. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. God had promised this judgment and now the judgment came. We should note that, that Sodom was not destroyed only for their sexual perversion of homosexuality. It's not the only reason Sodom was destroyed. But, as one writer says, because it was the plague center of every kind of depravity, including pride, sensuality, injustice, the author continues, nevertheless, the Hebrew reader would recognize homosexual practice as one aspect of this depravity, end quote. So the judgment came. The judgment came on the wickedness of this city. Again, multiple ways in which it was wicked. The judgment came and destruction of the cities happened, we, we read, with sulfur and fire. And there's some different ideas on how or what exactly is going on with the sulfur and fire, of how it rained down from heaven. Some have suggested, suggested a volcanic eruption. Some have suggested an earthquake with lightning. And some of these ideas do find uh, evidence uh, in the minerals that are in the present in that region, uh, that were present in that region where Sodom and Gomorrah once stood which it does not stand there anymore. It's underneath the, the, the Dead Sea, at the south end of the Dead Sea, that place. But nevertheless, those minerals are there. Some of those things have some evidence. 
But the point this morning is not how this happened. The, the point is, and what is clear, is that God did it. Look, look at it again. Look at verse 24. And the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. Verse 25, and he overthrew those cities. It is no mistake here who is doing the judgments. This is not simply a, a natural disaster. This is an act of God. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. They, they were wiped out in judgment against their wickedness. And that wasn't the only thing to be wiped out. Look at verse 26. But Lot... But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, people who don't even know much about the Bible somehow know about this verse. I mean, it is one verse. I mean, I've not counted up the words here, but I mean, we, we got like 12 words. And somehow this idea has leaked out into your popular imagination of what is actually happening here. And some of us might read that, or some people might read that, and see, that seems pretty harsh. Lot's wife looked back, and, and she was basically incinerated? Like, that seems crazy. But we need to remember two things about this. Number one is that they had a very clear command. Very clear command in verse 17. Do not look back. There's no way to misunderstand that. There's no way to misunderstand that. Now, now, some of you who are parents and you tell your children something very clearly and somehow they have an ability to misunderstand that, right? Or I didn't hear you or something like that. No, no, there, there's, no, there's none of that here. The angels were abundantly clear about what was to happen. That they were to go to this place, they were not to stop, and they were not to look back. This is a direct disobedience, direct rebellion against God's command. We do not get to self-determine which commands we are going to follow and which commands we are going to transgress. That is above our pay grade. The command of God is the command of God. And these angels, serving as God's messengers, made a command and it was to be followed. God's commands, we should add, are not burdensome, but they are for our good. The second thing we understand here, not only was, were they commanded, but when it says that she looked back, we might think this is like the, the passing glance. That's not what the word means. The word means to behold, to gaze, to look intently, to regard with pleasure. What we have is Lot's wife longing for Sodom. In an outright rebellion of the command, she intently looked on the city. And therefore, she was judged. One writer says that the torrent of liquid lava enveloped her. She was caught up as the sulfur and the fire fell from heaven. Life is choices. The scene shifts then back to Abraham in verse 27. And Abraham went, went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. 
Abraham came back to the place where he intercessed for Sodom in chapter 18 before the Lord. And he looks to the south to see this place where once these two cities stood and all he sees is smoke, like smoke of a furnace. Abraham is silent here as he sees, as he witnesses the judge of all the earth, is what he called him back in chapter 18, as he sees the judge of all the earth judging justly and righteously as he said he would. God kept his word, but God also did not forget Abraham. Look at verse 29. And so, and it was that, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Abraham's looking down there and all he sees is smoke and would conclude that there were not more than 10 righteous people that he had pled for. And as he sees the smoke go up, he has no idea if Lot is there. There's no indication that Abraham ever knew if Lot got out. And yet God in grace spares Lot. He remembers Abraham, sent Lot out, delivered him from the judgments. One writer says, God is a consuming fire and a friend of the righteous. He is a consuming fire, you betcha. But guess what? He's a friend to the righteous. God is just and God is merciful. And God gave more mercy here to Abram than he even requested. As Lot was saved, we might say, as through fire. Well, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah serves, as we said, as a warning of the coming judgment of God on sin. And let it be known that God will judge. God will, be, God will judge. God will judge sin. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Judgment is coming. Read your Bible. Judgment is coming. And it's coming without further warning. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us that it's going to be like a thief in the night. And yet we have the word of God. We have the word of God that tells us that judgment is coming. In Luke chapter 16, there's a story that Jesus tells about a rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man goes into Hades. And the rich man is concerned for his brothers. And he says to the Lord, Send Lazarus to tell my brothers about the reality of Hades so that they don't come here. And the Lord says, they have Moses and the prophets, which means they have the Old Testament. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't even believe if someone should rise from the dead and tell them. Which means to say this, if you don't believe the Bible, you're not going to believe anybody else either. not even if someone was raised from the dead. The Bible is our warning. The judgment of Sodom is our warning. We won't look at it this morning, but in Luke chapter 17, Jesus refers to this very story of the days of Lot, the judgment on Sodom, and says to remember, to remember Lot's wife, to remember the reality of judgment. Judgment is coming Judgment is coming. Take note and act accordingly. As God was patient and merciful 
here in chapter 19 to Lot and his family, he is patient and merciful today. In fact, as we continue to read our Bible, we find that God in grace and in mercy sent Christ not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Sinners might be saved. Isaiah tells us as Christ comes, it is as the the light is dawning on the earth. And as he comes, as that light has dawned, we see God's patience, his grace, his love, his mercy, and his justice all in the person and the work of Christ. And so judgment is coming, but the rescuer has come. And so we plead with you this morning, come to Christ. Flee to Christ. Come to the rescuer. Isaiah chapter 50 verses 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the rotten righteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, and he, for he will abundantly pardon. The apostle Paul says it this way, Now is the time of salvation. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait Friend, apart from Christ, you are under the wrath of God. Judgment is coming. And physical death is not the worst. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Eternal death is the separation of the soul from God. Judgment is coming. Flee to Christ. Oh God.